I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Jesse Murmel, congressional candidate for Massachusetts' 4th Congressional District. And prior to her congressional run, Jesse Murmel was the head of external affairs at Planned Parenthood. And we discuss how her time at Planned Parenthood inspired her to run for office. Jesse and I open our conversation discussing a really close friend of hers, one who I'm sure you've heard of, who also endorsed her campaign. I won't spoil it for you, and I'll just let you listen to the conversation for yourself. So here's my conversation with congressional candidate Jesse Murmel. Jesse Murmel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. So I was going to save this question for last, but I just can't <laughs> because I heard that you were um, close friends with Ayanna Presley, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. I, I still am. Yeah, she's my best friend. <laughs> wow. And you were maid of honor at our wedding. Guilty. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, the only thing I could think about when I was thinking about that, I was like, she sounds like somebody who would have an amazing, memorable cake. Is that true? I don't know. No joke. I don't even know how you know that, but Ayanna is the biggest cake freak I've ever met. Like it is not <laughs> unusual for her to be like, Psst, I have cake in my pocketbook. And like, <laughs> that's not an, like literally then she opens up her bag and like, there's just cake that she snagged from some event in her pocketbook. So yeah, the, the cake was no joke. Red velvet is far and away her favorite. Um, yeah. I knew, I knew it was something like that with buttercream, red velvet, something. Yes. No, she is, if you ever want to get on her good side, just show up with a red velvet cake. Oh, okay. That's good to know. (laughs) So she endorsed your campaign and you're running for Congress in Massachusetts fourth congressional district. And this is Joe Kennedy's, his current seat, right? Because he's running for Senate. Correct. So Joe Kennedy's been in this seat. And now that he's running for the U.S. Senate, can't run for both at once. Uh, So the seat is opening up and uh, Election Day is September 1st. Excellent. So you were head of external affairs at Planned Parenthood. Did that influence your decision to run for office? You know, there were a lot of things that inspired my run. But having come from not just at Planned Parenthood, but deep roots in the reproductive justice space and quite frankly, looking at the incredible danger that reproductive rights and reproductive justice face right now. And unfortunately, we saw that from the Supreme Court just the other day with this horrific contraceptive coverage ruling. The idea that I would not do everything in my power to be a part of that fight and protect reproductive justice, that just wasn't an option. So yeah, it was a huge piece of my decision to get in this race. Right. You know, one of the things when I talk to people about reproductive justice or reproductive rights, people who work in that space, whether they're activists or they're you know running for office or they run organizations, is that the prevailing theme is that we've all kind of been looking in the wrong direction for a long time. You know, not that Roe v. Wade is is not important. It is important, obviously, to protect Roe v. Wade, but that the true harm is coming from these kind of peripheral local attacks, you know, closing clinics, you know, these fake clinics, um, taking away birth control coverage. And that, you know, these attacks are happening locally. Right. But I was I was reading an op-ed that you'd written and you said that Democrats need to do more at the federal level. So what are you proposing? So it's not just at the federal level, it's at the local level, too. But, you know, uh, why hasn't Congress repealed Hyde? There's a pro-choice majority in the House right now. Why haven't we repealed Hyde? And I would say particularly in this moment, in the midst of this global pandemic, where we know the economic and health impacts have disproportionately impacted people who menstruate, right? We know that. The data bears it out. And we know that we haven't figured out what it's going to look like with reopening, with early childhood, with childcare, with going back to school. And the burden of care for those populations still falls disproportionately on women. And so in that moment, 
I would argue in any moment, but in that moment in particular, for a Democratic pro-choice majority to not be repealing Hyde uh, blows my mind a little bit and not in a good way, to be clear. (laughs) Yeah, not in a good way. That Yeah. But so that brings me to my next question, because you said you had a conversation with Cecile Richards, who was the, the former Planned Parenthood president. And she said that we generally should be looking for or looking to elect reproductive justice champions, right, versus people who are just voting in the right way. So what does a champion actually look like? You know, I will never forget that conversation with Cecile. It was when I was working at Planned Parenthood. It was in the heart of the ACA debate, you know, now over 10 years ago, literally around this issue of contraceptive coverage, which unfortunately we just uh, we just lost in the Supreme Court, which is devastating. But Cecile was up here in Boston, and there were four of us who went out for lunch at a Thai restaurant down the street from Planned Parenthood here in Boston. And, you know, she was lamenting the fact that in the middle of an incredibly ferocious debate around reproductive justice, and when Republicans and anti-abortion activists were fighting really at every turn to try to hurt people who menstruate and people who need reproductive care, you know, I don't know if you remember the Stupak Amendment and the Nelson Amendment and all the things that were clouding up that debate. She said that, you know, they'd realized that it's not just they, they need people to go and be good votes, right? It's not just that we need you to go press the right button at the right time. We need champions. We need people who are willing to stand on the floor of the House and defend the need for abortion care. We need people who are willing to stand in front of the cameras and at town hall meetings and have those discussions and really articulate that, you know, reproductive justice is racial justice. Reproductive justice is economic justice. And reproductive justice, quite frankly, cannot be left out of any broader conversation about repairing our crumbling, broken healthcare system. And I'll never, ever forget that conversation with Cecile because it just made such an impact on me. And particularly from districts like the one I'm seeking to represent, one of the deepest blue districts in the country, how, you know, again, in this moment with everything that's going on, the ways in which it's disproportionately impacting people who menstruate, really shame on us if we aren't sending champions on this issue to go fight the fights. No, you're absolutely right. When I read that and just listening to you now, I'm thinking about how I've thought about reproductive justice, you know, for years. And I just thought, like a lot of people, you know, how will that person vote on this issue, right? Versus will this be a constant person who will champion this hard on the floor for the long term? You know, and, and as a constituent, I think that there are a lot of other things that people care about just thinking about constituents now that they, they fight hard for like you know health care or climate change and this doesn't seem to be one that people feel like they have a voice in just because we've just only been expecting people to just vote in the right way versus fighting hard for it right and let's be clear we need people to vote in the right way like that that's really true important too but again when you're from districts like this one it's got to be about more And what's interesting is that as I talk to voters around the district, uh, once upon a time in person, now virtually, when people care about this issue, they care with real intensity. You know, the the passion that people have for reproductive justice when it's a a top three issue for them um, is incredibly, incredibly noticeable. So I think for folks for whom this issue has impacted their life in any way, positive, negative, they understand what the importance of having a champion means. And I think what the work a lot of us in the reproductive justice space have to do is to continually make the case 
that this is, unfortunately, with the attacks that we're constantly under, relevant today, relevant to the conversations we're having around racial justice and inequality um, and, you know, building our economy back in a way that's finally fair and just and inclusive. All of these things are connected to reproductive justice. And I think as folks connect those dots, you see the sort of light bulb go off, right? And they have that fire in their belly then for reproductive justice that a lot of us who've been in the space for a long time have been feeling for years. No, I think you're absolutely right. And the last thing I'll say on that is I think that once we fill the House and the Senate and, you know, all of our electeds and we have more people who are true champions, you know, we won't have conversations like, you know, should we broaden the tent, (laughs) To include people who are, you know, anti-abortion or, you know, I remember we had that conversation a couple of years ago and people were seriously considering that. No, it is a it is a refrain I hear frequently. And, you know, listen, even here in Massachusetts, which I know around the country, everyone's like, oh, Massachusetts, that liberal haven. (laughs) I have to tell you, you know, we have an abortion rights bill that has been languishing in our statehouse for several years. And it's a version of a bill that's uh, in previous forms been languishing for for over a decade. Um, It's a bill that we've been trying to get passed here that would protect abortion rights in the event that something were to go horribly wrong at the Supreme Court. It would allow for abortion after 24 weeks. Right now, if you're in Massachusetts, I just heard from a woman on a, a Zoom event a few days ago who had an intended pregnancy and was faced with a horrible medical event uh, late in her in her pregnancy and had to go to Colorado at the expense of over $20,000 to her personally in order to safely terminate her pregnancy. And that's someone from Massachusetts, right? We're not talking about a red state. We are talking about Massachusetts. You know, it's a bill that would put the right to abortion in state law. It would end the 24-hour waiting period that isn't enforced in Massachusetts, but is on the books. And we know how dangerous archaic laws like that can be. So, you know, I want to be clear that I'm not throwing shade and saying that I live in some perfect utopia. We have a lot of work to do, even in our most progressive communities and most progressive states. Yeah. So why don't we talk about the Supreme Court decision, at least the latest one, the one that came down recently. Yeah, with the Trump administration, they're allowing employers with religious and moral objections to limit access to birth control coverage under the ACA. Right. And that would affect, you know, I guess 126,000 women, I think, was the the count. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so, I mean, (laughs) I I don't really know where to begin with that. I mean, I, I, you know, thinking about it and and kind of the tenor of the question that we've been talking about, um, it just seems kind of absurd that we've gotten this far. This is birth control. This is not. I mean, come on, this is very basic. How do we get here? I mean, what did Justice Ginsburg say in her dissent? dissent this leaves women to fend for themselves. You know, we, we got here by failing to control not just the Supreme Court, but courts throughout the country. And conservatives and anti-abortion activists, quite frankly, have outplayed us in that space, right? They have aggressively sought to put anti-abortion uh, activist judges in power throughout the country. And that has been a long game that they have played. And unfortunately, we see that they're playing it successfully. And when we don't pay attention to local elections, when we don't pay attention to judicial elections, legislative elections, um, that's where we start to see, you know, this unfortunate regression in reproductive rights happen. And unfortunately, that played out in a really significant way in the Supreme Court this month, and fortunately, in a way that's going to have real ramifications 
for people who are in need of reproductive health care needed that free access to contraceptive care. And now in the midst of a very challenging set of economic circumstances, we are ripping that away from them. And, you know, if anyone is wondering whether or not this presidential election matters in November, I mean, there there are limitless ways in which it's important, but this is certainly at or near the top of the list. Yeah, but I guess the thing that I can't really wrap my brain around is the fact that birth control is not abortion. That's such an extreme view, right? I mean, because that was what was behind the moral objection, right? And so that's that's the first thing. And the second thing, I can't really understand you know, the people behind it, what the argument would be in relation to what the objection is, right? I mean, what behavior are they hoping to curb with this decision? Well, I mean, it's this archaic idea that if you teach people about their bodies and teach them how to stay safe and make their own decisions, you are in some way blessing a certain behavior. When in fact, we know uh, that, that the opposite is, is essentially true, that when you teach people and give them the tools to stay healthy and make their own choices, um, you know, what what would be, you know, an unintended pregnancy or, you know, when you're talking about sex education, which was, of course, not the topic of the case, but something that I think people lump into the same argument you actually reduce unintended pregnancies and STI in, in rates and, uh, you know, all of these things that hopefully from a public health and societal perspective, we're trying to to reduce. But, you know, this said that religious beliefs make it OK for you to discriminate about what type of health care someone can access. And there is no lens through which I can look at that and think that it is acceptable. And the nonsensical, completely devoid of any scientific sense that this relates to abortion in any way, and that that's an argument that someone is buying. I, I mean, clearly we've moved away from believing in science in this country, and that's a problem for a whole lot of reasons. But, um, you know, the idea that that is part of why important healthcare coverage was just ripped out of people's hands keeps me up at night. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing that kind of stopped me. I mean, I think that we've been moving so slowly but steadily in this direction that when it finally happened, you know, I had to take a step back and think like, yeah. oh, they're equating birth control with abortion. And the right. thing is, is that, you know, most Americans, you know, of reproductive age, you know, need birth control, including right. religious people. And when you survey Americans, you know, most are in favor of having, you know, access to abortion as well as contraception. Absolutely. And, you know, I feel like, that you know, this minority group of people with these views are controlling decisions that are affecting the majority of us. And are just frankly bad for public health uh, and, you know, costing us a lot of money. We know that you know, what is it that Guttmacher uh, has said? For every dollar you're spending on preventive care when it comes to reproductive care, you're saving $8, $9. I might be getting the final amount wrong, but it is a, an exponential savings. Um, so at every possible level, this is bad for society. Yeah, but in your state, um, you are safeguarded from this decision or decisions like this because you have something called the access law, the right? Access. And that, that requires yeah. coverage. What is that? So it's a law that we passed and I, I testified in favor of, I think it was in 2017, that requires insurance companies in Massachusetts to provide coverage for birth control. But there are a few exceptions, unfortunately. Um, so if you are self-insured, or if you have employer-sponsored insurance, um, so you're, I think it's you know that your employer is self-insuring, then you aren't covered. It's a small population in Massachusetts, but it, it's not a perfect piece of legislation that was passed. There are still people um, 
who are left unprotected. So even with that, there are people in Massachusetts who will be harmed by what the Supreme Court decided the other day. Yeah. And I think this goes back to the original conversation we were having about, you know, protection at the federal level. Right. I mean, if there were something to shore this up, that would be amazing. (laughs) Well, and I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've found that as I've worked in this space over the years, so many times we're out there saying, you know, Roe could be overturned. They're chipping away at birth control coverage, you know, whatever red flag we're waving. And so often when we're asking for the protections that we need, fighting for the protections that we need to make sure that those negative impacts don't wind up happening, we get met with this response of, oh, you're just being dramatic. That's not going to happen. They're not going to take that away. You know, this is why are we even having this conversation? I mean, I can't tell you the number of times when I used to be in the state house in Massachusetts, you know, pushing for something that that's the reaction that I would get. And to me, this legislation that we passed in Massachusetts, you know, seeing the threat that was coming to contraceptive coverage and wanting to put, even though it's imperfect, at least some sort of stopgap measure in place to protect as many people as possible in the Commonwealth. I think it makes the point that, you know, we we are not being dramatic. First of all, stop accusing women of that. We are not being dramatic. We are not being ridiculous. These are very real threats. We have seen that firsthand now. And those of us who are out there fighting the fights, trying to protect people, you know, we can't be pushed aside. Yeah. You can't be dramatic about reproductive justice or reproductive rights. How can you be dramatic about that? It's kind of fundamental. It is absolutely fundamental. I mean, to your own autonomy, to your control of your own body, to your ability to plot your economic future and your life's course. I mean... Yeah, I, I cannot possibly see a way in which we could over-dramatize. <laughs> right, like, why are you worrying about that? Stop worrying about that. Why are you bodily- worrying about that thing that's like totally core to your future and your ability to control your own health and body? Get over it. Exactly. Well, another Supreme Court decision, um, June versus Russo, which was a big one. Can you tell us what this case was about? I've talked about it a few times, but can you just give a really quick overview? Yeah. So June Medical versus Russo, which was decided in our favor now a few weeks ago in, in COVID times, I will confess that I don't have the greatest sense of how much time has passed. Right. All I know is it's a day that ends in Y in the year 2020. Um, But it was a case that was uh, originated in Louisiana. Louisiana had passed a whole bunch uh, of laws that made it incredibly burdensome to provide abortion care in their state, you know, medically unnecessary laws. It was very similar to Whole Woman's Health, a case that had been decided in our favor several years ago. And what anti-abortion activists were seeking to do was in light of a new, more conservative, more anti-abortion Trump Supreme Court attempt to, to get a different outcome. Uh, And luckily, they failed. And what could have happened, depending on uh, the severity of a a bad ruling, if that had happened, is that it could have done anything from take a sledgehammer to Roe and essentially uh, eliminate access to abortion care in many, many states and thereby create a crisis of access around the country where only the most fortunate who have the funds to travel and are able to take time off have access to that vital care. Or it could have, and I know not many people think this actually would have happened, and clearly it didn't, it could have overturned Roe. Uh, And clearly we have dodged a bullet, but I don't know a single person in this space who thinks that we are in the clear. There is no question that other, perhaps even more dangerous attacks are coming. Um, I feel very fortunate that anti-abortion activists failed at this. I'm I'm not going to lie, I was kind of shocked when I saw the decision come down. Uh, but in a, in a good way. 
But we cannot rest on these laurels. We know that more is coming. We know that anti-abortion activists have been you know, working to lay the groundwork with trap laws across the country. And to your point earlier, you know, work that has been done at the local level to um, advance pieces of legislation that are bad for people who menstruate and people who need reproductive health care and abortion care. So definitely take a victory lap on June Medical versus Russo and then get fired up to keep the fight going. All right. Well, I mean, I think this highlights the fact that the Supreme Court makeup is really precarious and it's kind of scary right now. I mean, given those two decisions kind of in a row. Um, so, OK, so to your run, your congressional run. How are you adjusting to running for office during the pandemic? Because I think you you announced sometime last fall. Yeah, I announced in October uh, in a diner in Fall River, Massachusetts, back when one could be in a diner and crowd into a booth and have some grilled cheese and tomato soup with some people and talk about issues. Uh, clearly, those days are, are past, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, and then obviously in early March, everything changed. And, you know, we were talking about Ayana earlier Literally two days after lockdown, uh, we had scheduled our office opening and we have this incredible headquarters, which unfortunately hasn't seen a lot of action, but this incredible headquarters and Ayana was going to come and do an office opening with us with, you know, 50, 60, 75 people. And it became clear that that was just unsafe. And keep in mind, this was March before we knew about masks and all of that, but what we ended up doing was turning that into a Facebook Live event where my campaign manager and deputy campaign manager uh, gave uh, an MTV crib style tour <laughs> uh, of the uh, of the office. Unfortunately, probably with not as great of a soundtrack, but, you know, we did our best. And then the last room they ended in had Ayana and me and we did about a half an hour of Q&A with folks online. And really from, from that day in early March, we, like every other campaign, and quite frankly, like everyone else in every other sector of life, have gone virtual. And of course, that means virtual town halls and virtual fundraisers and uh, more Zooms than any of us can count. But we've also tried to get really creative and do things that even in these serious times show that, you know, I don't have to take myself too seriously. And, you know, I do these videos almost every day talking about an issue or some article I've read. And obviously I screw up, right? I, I trip on my tongue or my dog decides that she needs to be a part of the video, you name it. And so we've released bloopers reels about that. Um, my campaign manager and deputy are both amateur astrologers. And so one <laughs> Friday afternoon on Facebook Live, they did uh, a reading of my birth chart which uh, as a 40-something, I don't claim to understand, but it was fun uh, and people got a kick out of it. So, you know, again, serious times and, and we're meeting that moment, but also not afraid to, to mix things up a little bit and have a little bit of fun and connect with voters in a different way, especially because I can't door knock. I can't march in parades. I can't show up at a farmer's market and shake hands. So, uh, you know, we have to be willing to try different things, even if it is through, you know, that blinking green dot at the top of my computer. Yeah. No, I like that. I, uh, those are some really good ideas. I couldn't, I feel for everyone who has to run for office right now. That's, that's, it's hard. Um, so what are your constituents saying? What do they want to see from your campaign? You know, I hear about healthcare and an equitable recovery from COVID-19 all the time. You know, people want a healthcare system that they can access and they can afford. They want reproductive justice. Uh, because again, I'm I'm running in a very blue district, and people understand that reproductive justice is an essential part of the healthcare conversation. And people want an equitable recovery to this crisis that we're in 
right now. You know, they want to make sure uh, that particularly black and brown communities that have been disproportionately harmed because of the centuries of structural racism that exist in this country, that we aren't rebuilding what existed just a few months ago, that we're taking this opportunity as hard as the reason it has presented itself is, but taking the opportunity to recraft the systems in this country in a way that is finally just and equitable and inclusive. And those are the types of conversations that we're having in this district, whether it's about, you know, education or healthcare or housing or transportation. Uh, you know, unfortunately, structural racism intersects with literally every area of policy in the United States. And that means we have to look at everything we're doing through a racial justice lens. When is your um, primary date? It's September... September 1st, but early voting starts on August 22nd and vote by mail applications will be out in early August. Excellent. Well, I have to go back to your original tip. So just before we close out, if you see or talk to Ayana, you won't see her. But if you talk to her, just tell her that I bake really great cakes and I'll send her one if she comes on the electorate. (laughs) (laughs) I'll send her three. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. All right. I I will absolutely tell her that. I will text her as soon as this ends that uh, there is a cake for podcast offer on the table. (sighs) Exactly. Okay. Well, Jesse Mermel, thank you so much for joining me. I wish you all the best and thank you for being a champion on a champion on reproductive justice. Thank you so much. It is truly my pleasure and thank you for having me. Stay safe out there. 